The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Welcome, everyone, to Crime and Justice Radio, where we talk all things crime, justice, mayhem, and the courts. My name is Kevin Kieran. I'm a founding partner of the law firm Barquette Epstein, Kieran, Aldea, and Laterco, or Barquette Epstein for short, the primary sponsor of Crime and Justice Radio. You can check us out at barquetteepstein.com. Tonight and for the next few weeks, I have the pleasure of hosting this show as your regular hosts, my partners Bruce Barquette and Aida Lysenring. Today began the trial of a complex federal quadruple murder case in the Southern District of New York in White Plains, in the case of the United States versus Nicholas Tartaglione, until very recently a death penalty case, until the Biden Justice Department took the death penalty off the table a couple of months ago. The government will call 40 or so witnesses, as I understand it, on its case. Bruce and Aida have been tireless in their defense of their client so far, and I wish them good luck in the trial and ordeal in the weeks ahead. And kudos to Bruce and Aida for having the guts to fight the federal government for years in a death penalty murder case. And kudos to criminal defense lawyers everywhere who fight every day to protect their clients' rights and oftentimes their lives. It's been my experience that the role of criminal defense lawyers is often misunderstood and often and as often maligned as somehow not as noble as the prosecutor's job. I was a prosecutor, now I'm a defense lawyer. Both sides do noble work. If everyone works hard and a fair judge presides, that's the best chance we have at finding justice in a courtroom. Well, there's no shortage of crime and justice stories in the news uh, these days, that's for sure, and uh, we'll get to a few of those in a couple of moments. I'm really excited about our guest tonight. Stephen Kamark, who will be joining us in a little while. Stephen is the CEO of API Consulting Group, an international investigative firm. He's here tonight to talk about the role of investigators, who their clients are, and some of his experiences recently in Ukraine and elsewhere around the globe and here at home. Before we get to Stephen, a little bit of a news roundup and some thoughts. Earlier today, the New York City bicycle path truck-driving terrorist Saifulo Saipov, a citizen of Uzbekistan, escaped the death penalty in the Southern District. You may recall he was the individual who killed eight bicyclists and horribly injured many, many more in an unquestionable act of terrorism in New York City on the west side of Manhattan um, by driving a rented Home Depot truck and killing all those innocent people. He bragged about it. He asked for an ISIS flag in his hospital room, and today a jury declined to vote for the death penalty. That has to be a unanimous vote. If it's not unanimous, if even one juror holds out, uh, then the penalty becomes life without parole. In other news, the state of Connecticut uh, earlier today or in the last couple of days commuted the sentences of 44 convicted murderers, outraging the families of the victims. You hear a lot about so-called criminal justice reform, and the commutation of life sentences is one of those types of reforms. 
The state of Texas executed two mentally impaired men for murder within a few days of one another last week. The executions of Arthur Brown Jr. and John Ballantyne by lethal injection makes a total of five executions in Texas since the start of the year, and we've not yet reached the Ides of March. You hear a lot of you hear a great deal of discussion on this program about the death penalty, as both Aida and Bruce have worked hard to exonerate men and women accused of death penalty eligible offenses and in some cases convicted and sentenced to death. I have mixed feelings about the death penalty. I once gave a speech about it in college, a speech in favor of the death penalty, a speech arguing that it was morally and ethically justifiable and deserved in certain circumstances. Now, I'm opposed to it. I've changed my view. Not for the reason you might think. I think in certain cases it can still be justified morally and is richly deserved. The problems are it debases us as a society. I don't want to give the government the power to execute its citizens. And maybe most importantly, it's irreversible in a system that convicts innocent people far more often than you might imagine. Um, in other news recently, the second of two trials in the death of eight-year-old Thomas Valva resulted in a second, a second guilty verdict to second-degree depraved indifference murder last week. You, uh, this uh, young Thomas died due to the actions of his father and stepmother, according to the two juries, by punishing him and his brother, forcing them to sleep in a cold garage for having a medical condition which caused them to have trouble with incontinence and with controlling their bowels. This was one of the saddest cases I've seen in my lifetime. A beautiful little autistic boy who, along with his little brother, suffered for years in an unloving household, to put it mildly. Michael Valva, a former police officer, was sentenced a month or so ago to 25 years to life in prison for his son's death. And now his fiancée, Angela Polina, was convicted last week of the same crime and will be sentenced uh, in the near future. We'll see if she gets the same life sentence. Early last week concluded the so-called Alex Murdaugh case in South Carolina, a case I'll confess I was uh, obsessed with. An unusual case for many reasons. A politically powerful lawyer from a politically powerful family was charged with slaughtering his son Paul and his wife Maggie on a family property. The government proved that Murdaugh at the time of the killings was under investigation for stealing millions of dollars in client funds meant to compensate poor families for injuries and or the loss of loved ones. Um, there was a lot of documentaries to be watched even while the trial was going on, which was very unusual. And you learned a great deal about the absolute power that this family, the Murdoch family, had over the low country in South Carolina for the better part of 100 years. And what was interesting was it was very difficult to understand what Alec Murdoch's motive would have been. Since by all accounts, he loved his son and his wife, and the prosecutors came up with a theory that it was intended as a distraction to the developing investigations that were soon going to expo expose his financial crimes and presumably lead to ruin. Um, if, in fact, he did what he was convicted of doing, I don't find that to be a particularly persuasive motive. Um, but a prosecutor does not need to prove motive. They just need to prove that someone uh, committed the crime. 
And there's all sorts of uh, interesting backstories. Uh, the son he killed was involved in a fatal boating accident uh, years earlier. There was still open litigation about that case. There were questions about whether the family tried to fix that case so that he wouldn't be held uh, responsible. There was a suspicious death of a gay teenager that uh, there was lots of reporting may have been attributed to members of that family. There was a suspicious death of the family housekeeper who was like a nanny to the boys in that family. And uh, in fact, it was her family who had millions stolen by uh, Alex uh, Murdoch. So interestingly, the sentencing doesn't take long down there. He was convicted on one day. He was sentenced the following day to uh, two consecutive life sentences with no possibility of parole. Uh, we've been watching the uh, University of Idaho murder case uh, unfold. There's not a lot of news that comes out of that case uh, because there's a gag order constraining both sides not to speak to the press, but occasionally there are filings that give uh, a glimpse and insight into uh, what's going on there. That's a case that appears to be headed to trial. If you recall, it was a horrible knife knifing of uh, four college students in the middle of the night with no apparent motive and no suspect for the better part of a month. And then the local prosecutors who'd been getting lots of grief for not solving the case more quickly, local investigators, police investigators, made an arrest about a month later, largely based on forensics. And it looks like they're starting to build a strong circumstantial case based on cell phone uh, data, location data from uh, the man charged, Brian Kohlberger, I think is his name. Yeah, Brian Kohlberger, who was a student of criminal justice nearby at a local college. They found that he'd had some interactions with some of the uh, dead uh, women uh, on social media and that uh, he seemed to be in the area of their home many, many times late at night. And so far, that's uh, been unexplained. So we'll keep an eye on that case and keep you posted. It was that horrible event in Mexico where a family of four, or a family and friends, uh, traveled to so-called medical tourism for a medical procedure right over the border. And uh, in some uh, uh, unexplained incident were kidnapped, two of them were murdered, and supposedly it was a case of mistaken identity by one of the cartels. The violence in Mexico, particularly close to the border, is just unbelievable down there these days. And uh, in an unusual development, the cartel surrendered half a dozen of their members, essentially washing their hands of them, saying the whole thing was a mistake and actually issuing an apology. A very interesting development. You saw the so-called SFB bank collapse in recent days. Interesting to see whether any criminal charges uh, uh, come out of that case, uh, particularly since it appears that some of the high-level uh, banking officials there were withdrawing uh, deposits and or their own and or selling stock and or awarding bonuses to all the employees uh, within 24 hours of that collapse. You saw, if you recall, the FTX cryptocurrency exchange resulted in criminal charges. That case has been quiet for a while also. There was a, a very significant attack on a police training facility outside Atlanta, Georgia, by a group of dozens of uh, uh, rowdy attackers. Many people have said they're so-called Antifa, one of the most uh, uh, interesting and uh, unusual and hard-to-define loosely organized uh, um, groups in the country who seem to show up 
and be at the heart of uh, a lot of these riots and other issues. So that's uh, troublesome, that the, the very thing that people advocating police reform might hope to see, the construction of a training facility to teach young police officers modern uh, law enforcement techniques, and it was, uh, it was extremely damaged uh, during that attack. A couple of other things, uh, interesting to see some of the video released by the uh, House Republicans, uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy released, uh, uh, I believe, all of the, un uh, of the unredacted video from the January 6th event down in Washington, and it, uh, it allowed a counter-narrative other than the narrative that the government uh, set forth in the trials of some of those, those men who've been convicted and sentenced uh, to prison, in one case, uh, four years for the events of that day. Um, in just a moment, I'm going to uh, introduce our guest. But before I do, uh, I want to give a shout out to Crime and Justice Radio's principal sponsor, the law firm of my law firm, Barquette Epstein, with offices in Garden City, Huntington, and Manhattan, representing clients from the Hudson to the Hamptons and beyond. If you or someone you know is in trouble or has a legal problem of any sort, consider giving them us a call at 516-745-1500. You can learn all about us by Googling us or by visiting our website, BarquetteEpstein.com. Okay, it is uh, my great pleasure to introduce tonight's guest, Stephen Kamark. And uh, Stephen is the CEO of API International Consulting Group and is an intelligence, security, and investigation professional with extensive experience conducting special investigations. His depth of knowledge of government corruption, human trafficking, counterintelligence, and organized crime demonstrates a focus on being diverse and seeking the most challenging cases. Stephen demonstrates his commitment to the profession through a broad range of lectures during gatherings of his peers, as well as his service on the board of directors for the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, otherwise known as NCISS. In addition to his service to the profession in the U.S., Stephen is also a member of the Board of Directors and U.S. Ambassador for the World Association of Detectives and sits on the Board of Directors as well, as chairs the Intelligence International Intelligence Think Tank, the Cybersecurity Global Alliance. He also sits on the Board of Advisors for Pace University Design Thinking Graduate Program in New York and the International Law Enforcement Training Network. Stephen proudly served in the United States Army and is a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom and the Global War on Terror. Stephen holds certifications in numerous intelligent disciplines to include technical surveillance countermeasures, certified master anti-terrorism specialist, intelligence counterintelligence specialist, combating human trafficking, instructor and master trainer of lie detection, to name a few. In 2020, he was awarded Instructor of the Year by Whetstone Security for his instruction in human lie detection, utilizing the BLAST method. Stephen served as a guest speaker and lecturer for the World Association of Detectives, International Foundation of Cultural Properties Protection, Society of Professional Investigators, the Global Security Connection Conference, International Law Enforcement Training Summit, the BlackBerry Security Summit, as well as numerous others. He was featured in various national and international media outlets, for his investigative work in international criminal cases and human trafficking. His work resulted in the release of an American citizen facing the death penalty in a Chinese prison for a crime he did not commit and, and was reported as instrumental in that exoneration by the Daily Mail. 
recently. Stephen, welcome, and thank you for agreeing to be our guest tonight. Thank you for having me, Kevin. And thank you also for your uh, military service. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Um, why don't we start? Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that uh, um, Chinese prison uh, exoneree and uh, what was that all about and uh, what your role was and what that was like? You know, that was a very interesting case. And um, in and around March of 2018, uh, Matthew Fellows was teaching at the Nanjing University in China. Uh, during that time, he went over there to help te teach the Chinese English. And he just had a real passion for it. Well, they, uh, in and around the end of March, he was sentenced and convicted on four counts of drug trafficking and uh, thrown into prison. And it wasn't that just for smoking marijuana and passing a, a marijuana cigarette around to others, or at least that was the accusation. In other words, it wasn't even more serious than that. But that was enough to get him sentenced to the death penalty in China. Yes? You know, the Chinese government is is an interesting creature. We as Americans uh, do not hold, uh, you know, the same criminal justice standards as they do in China. And in China, passing a joint could be construed as as what they exactly got him for, um, just even a count. Uh, it was told to me by a couple Chinese attorneys that, that I'd spoken with that drug trafficking in China is worse than rape. How did you uh, end up helping to get him out or to convince the Chinese government uh, that he was innocent or to let him go? Well, it all, it all boils down to getting down to the truth of the matter, right? And so we launched an investigation, and through the work of uh, help, help of uh, the United States government, some senators, some congressmen, and working uh, avidly with the um, consulates in China, we were able to get to the truth proposed uh, evidence of his innocence to the Chinese government. And it really came down to the very last minutes. Uh, we didn't know if they were going to let him go. We had, we had done our best to, to show light and that he should be released from his horribly harsh conditions and, uh, and brought back. And at, and at the end, uh, the Chinese did release him. Um, were you a part of the reunion with his family, or did you have an opportunity to interact with them once he got home? I, I did, I did. And uh, so we were able to bring him back on American soil on uh, November 12, 2018. And it was just, a, it was a very glorious moment. Uh, you know, his, his family was there waiting for him at the airport. Uh, there was news and media crews. And uh, you know, I was able to uh, not only just talk with them and also speak with his mother on it. And, uh, you know, they just they're just moving towards uh, healing at this point. Well, I'm sure and, it was uh, uh, one of the great moments of uh, your career. In the second half hour, I'm looking forward to speaking with you about uh, some of your recent travels and some of your rec recent cases uh, in Ukraine in particular. But before we get to that, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, the role of the investigator? or an investigations uh, firm, what types of clients they have and what types of works potentially they could do? Absolutely. You know, the, the area of private investigations and consulting uh, is, it covers a lot of different spectrums. There are people that cover uh, workplace violence. There are people that cover corporations, insurance claims. And when you get into the real niche 
coverages that, that we cover and some other firms cover out there as well, which is where we work with law firms. We work with high net worth individuals. We work with uh, governments and organizations to provide, you know, a bi-spokes uh, investigative solution where we provide solutions to our clients. You know, <laughs> everyone has different issues. And, uh, you know, our goal is to get to the truth and uh, be able to provide solutions that, uh, that create a positive outcome for our clients. You, it sounds like you guys are pretty sophisticated. It looks like we're at the bottom of the hour. So uh, we'll have the whole second half hour, uh, Stephen, to talk about some of your recent cases. And uh, I know there's some great stories in there. So we'll see you uh, when we get back from the break. Kevin Kieran, your host at Crime and Justice Radio on Long Island News Radio, 103.9 FM. We can also be heard on uh, the uh, uh, Long Island News Radio website, as well as on their app. Our guest tonight, Stephen Kamork, CEO of international private investigative firm, API Consulting Group. Uh, welcome back, Stephen. Are you still with us? Yes, sir. Well, I uh, thank you for your uh, service uh, early in what, the United States Army, it was. Is that right? Yes, sir. Um, my understanding is that uh, uh, you volunteered um, back around the time of 9-11. Did 9-11 have anything to do with your military service or the reasons that you joined the Army? You know, I was, uh, I was in uh, taking some college courses at the time, and I remember walking into class and watching on the TV. Uh, uh, we didn't get the TV on in time to see the, f the first tower get hit, but we watched the second one get hit, and we saw the smoke from the first. And that was a, it was a life-changing event, as I know, for a lot of us, 9-11. And um, at that time, you know, I, I felt called to, to serve. And you joined the Army, is that right? I originally went into the Army, and then uh, I got out of the Army and did some work, uh, some contracting work at that point, and then went back in, uh, actually, to the National Guard and uh, kind of took a different path at that point. actually went into the chaplaincy program. And uh, during my time in there, I was uh, transferred out of the chaplaincy and into military intelligence. Um, so that explains some of your background uh, in terms of um, sort of international sophistication and intelligence services and so forth. Did uh, Were you a part of, in some way, Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom, either in combat or in intelligence gathering? What was your connection there? I did. I did. I did have a deployment in Iraq, and uh, I served in both the War on Terror and uh, in the Iraqi War as well. At some point, uh, recently, you've had travels in Ukraine. Could you tell us uh, why you were in Ukraine and uh, what that was about? And is it is it true that there are some things that you can't talk about for some reason? The general yeah, nature there, just there are some things that I that I can't mention and some things that uh, that are going on, but I wouldn't be mentioning those in the first place. Okay, so why don't you well, tell us I'll what you can tell us about 
uh, Ukraine and why you were there and what you saw. Yeah, I was uh, originally requested to come over to Ukraine by General Nevatov to help stand up a counter-human trafficking program for the country. And when I was there, um, I, I was uh, became apprised of a lot of uh, different things going on. And it moved, uh, in addition to setting up a, uh, and working to combat human trafficking in the country and working with different aspects of the United States government and the United Nations, it, it was, became very evident of a lot of the places that we visited of many different war crimes and atrocities that had been committed, the, the mass slaughters and Bucha and other areas as well. Um, and at that point, we were working with the Ukrainian government. And uh, I had actually, when I got back, I came back and uh, actually briefed the State Department on our findings. And hopefully, um, that has done some good. We're still doing a lot of uh, humanitarian missions there. Can I ask and, you a uh, couple of questions about that? Um, yes, sir. Most of us, our audience uh, uh, as well, are familiar with uh, what the, we read in the news about uh, the progress of that war and uh, the war crimes and atrocities committed by the Russians. But I don't think we're used to hearing about human trafficking as an issue in Ukraine. When you hear about human trafficking, it seems to be human trafficking coming from south of our border. Um, what type of human trafficking was going on over there, and uh, how were you able to witness it? So I think we need to give some some context to some of the issues at hand, one of which I would start with saying that the it's a well-known fact that the Russian population has been on a decline uh, in their population growth for a number of years. And since the war in Ukraine, uh, military-aged males and younger have been conscripted to, to fight uh, for the Russian army. And uh, so that makes their uh, producing population uh, go down even further. Now, I, I tell you that, I tell you this, some of the atrocities that we witnessed is when uh, the Russians came over, they were shooting indiscriminately. Uh, there were multitudes of, of rapes, uh, uh, just pure butchery. And in a multitude of towns, uh, I, with that, they... Uh, multiple different uh, mass grave sites. I met with the local Kiev regional police who took me to all these sites, uh, gave us all the evidence uh, that they had on it. And we got to speak with a lot of different individuals there, got to um, really witness a lot of these atrocities, including there was around 200,000 children that were kidnapped and uh, taken by the Russian army back in uh, through Belarus and different areas to, and for lack of a better term, reseed the Russian population. We have testimonies from children who uh, were able to escape out of some of these camps. Um, and one of the things that I don't think ever really got a lot of attention was that they would raid orphanages and and take these children out of these homeless children directly out of orphanages back to Russia. And I know we talk about human trafficking, but it's not just it's not just an act an action of uh, sex trafficking. That's just one part of human trafficking. 
a, a great increase in, in different forms of human trafficking is, um, is organ harvesting. And it's where we see that it, it, there's a non-discriminatory, whether it's male, whether it's female. Organ harvesting in Ukraine? Uh, in the Ukraine and actually all over. Uh, we've seen such a huge spike of it in Africa um, and really all over through the human trafficking network. I've read about it in Chinese prisons as a regular practice over the years, uh, but not in Ukraine. Um, and when I was thinking of human trafficking, I thought you were speaking mostly about sex trafficking. Is sex trafficking also a problem in Ukraine? It is. It is. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but it, it's a growing business and it's a, a multi-billion dollar a year business and it's, it affects the whole world. Um, luckily, there are some, some really great people around the world that uh, are getting together to really help uh, inform governments and, and help fight against human trafficking. We, we work with such a great individual, Jenny Sue Jensen, who actually sat on the uh, U.S. Advisory Council on Human Trafficking. And we've had the great opportunity to work with her um, all over the world uh, on a number of different issues. And she's just a great human being. And there are many great human beings out there who are picking up the sword, per se, to, to take this event on. Well, thank goodness. I read some of what you've written about this subject, and uh, apparently a lot of the um, people are kidnapped uh, at uh, border crossings and or refugee sites when people are at their weakest physically and uh, emotionally. Uh, there, There's trickery employed to get them to get on a bus or in a van or with their children or without. Could you tell us about that and what steps you guys took to try to combat that? Yeah, we met with a team I was working with. We met with uh, multiple different uh, uh, city leaders in, in multiple different cities along different border aspects of Ukraine. And what they informed us was that uh, the process that was happening and, and what we saw for ourselves going through the border in multiple different areas uh, was that these people would be rushed and they would have their, their children with them. They would be on the road uh, dirty for, for uh, you know, days, weeks. Uh, just, to, just to give a, a little bit of context, if you're going from the western border of Poland to Kiev, that's an eight-hour car ride. And people were flooding on foot. Um, the lines were incredibly... Uh, Along And so you would have one of the tactics that people would use would be they would line up uh, and there would be humanitarian aid, uh, legitimate humanitarian aid lining up at these bus sites. But then there would be one or two buses that were not um, part of that humanitarian aid. And this was, you know, also um, backed by the uh, regional police, as they told us and, and gave us excerpts of this happening was. They would have people come in and say, hurry, we got to go now. we got to go now. Otherwise, they're going to miss the bus. You won't have anything to do. And they would bring these women, these families onto these buses. And like we said, some of them were legitimate, but some of them weren't. And those people would then be taken. But where we truly see the greatest atrocities of human trafficking right now is not on the Polish border, um, but on the northern and eastern borders. 
Well, uh, I can't imagine anything uh, more horrifying than enduring all those degradations only to be hoodwinked into getting on the wrong bus or in the wrong van. And the uh, next thing you know, you're part of a sex trafficking uh, ring. So uh, thank you for your hard work uh, in that area. I also read where you spoke about part of uh, Russian military tactics against uh, Ukraine and the Ukrainian people would be to engage in so-called uh, psychological operations. I think you call it, or it's called uh, in the business, psyops, uh, by uh, trying to break the will of the Ukrainian people. Could you give some examples of things that the Russians would do other than what we've spoken about so far? You mentioned something about uh, attacking police stations is among the first things they did. Absolutely. Um, you know, to give some extra clarity on just the way that a lot of the people in Ukraine live, they have town centers. And so they would have in these villages, they would have these, these town centers. And these town centers would be these communal focal points of the entire village. That's where they would come, where they would socialize, where they would talk, where they would eat, uh, where, where they would uh, trade. And then they had the police stations throughout different cities. And one of the things that the Russians would do is they would launch mortar attacks, uh, amongst other attacks, into the not just the police stations, but also into the police training centers and the civilian town centers. And you had mentioned PSYOPs. Yes, the, the standard uh, part of that PSYOP doctrine is they get in there and demoralize the population into believing that the police the government centers that, that they know are there to protect them cannot even survive against the Russian invaders and the occupiers. It's completely demoralizing to the populace. You mentioned that uh, you've given testimony or otherwise briefed uh, United States uh, government officials, maybe the State Department, about uh, some of what you bore witness to in Ukraine. Is there a discussion in your understanding and experience about trying to hold certain Russians, maybe the Russian government, maybe Vladimir Putin himself, responsible for the commission of war crimes in Ukraine? There are a lot of countries now uh, who have signed off on holding the uh, Russian occupation of Ukraine starting in uh, uh, late February and March of uh, 2022 uh, accountable for these actions. Uh, I, I can't say what goes on behind closed doors and what's way above my pay grade. Uh, I, I can only tell you that the United States, in, in my personal opinion, um, is very interested and has been interested, at least in the parties and agencies I've spoken with, into getting to the truth of the matter. Your resume, um, Stephen, suggests that you do a lot of teaching. Um, and uh, my understanding is that... Uh, you were invited to write a chapter for a book on uh, the investigative uh, world and techniques and so forth, and you wrote on a particular subject, and if I recall correctly, the subject was the importance of tenacity uh, as an investigator. Do I have that right? Yes, you do, Kevin. And that book is uh, it's supposed to be released uh, in April. It's called The Art of the Investigation 2. Uh, it's written by uh, a number of, of great investigators, and I had the honor and privilege of, of being asked to write a chapter in this. And uh, the book's also, um, I believe, going to be used now in uh, 
John Jay College, uh, their criminology program, and some others. Uh, Bruce Saxman and, and other individuals have, have really been a part of this um, to really get this moving. And it's, uh, just, like I said, I've had the honor and privilege to, to work with such great people. Well, uh, congratulations. I hope you get uh, great success uh, with that uh, book. I'm curious what drives you. I mean, to write a chapter focusing on tenacity um, and uh, to be so interested in trying to put an end to human trafficking, have you had life experiences that have kind of motivated you uh, to do what you do today? You know, when when Bruce Saxman and and Chelsea Vins uh, asked me to to write a chapter in this book, I was I was very honored, and I was going back and forth over my head and and, and where to start, and um, I figured the best place to start was at the beginning, and uh, so I wrote about some of the issues that had uh, become me as, as a child, as in. Uh, being in uh, homeless as a child, growing up on the streets, being in and out of group homes, uh, being both physically and sexually abused as a child in some of these homes. And, you know, even having to rely on uh, veterans who are living on the streets just to teach me how to eat, how to get out of uh, the weather. Um, you know, it's, we all look at, you know, different angles in life, but for me, it's there's never been a question. You just have to continue to move forward. You have to do the right things for the right reasons. Well, I'm sorry you had those experiences as a child, but uh, they say if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And it sounds like uh, certainly those experiences contributed to your uh, remarkable success uh, in life and uh, the capacity to do some of the good things that uh, we've been discussing here. Um, let's talk about the law enforcement in the United States uh, for a few moments. Um, it strikes me that both as a veteran and a contributor to certain uh, law enforcement periodicals I've seen you published in that uh, you're a supporter of law enforcement uh, generally. Is that a, in this country? Is that a fair statement? I would say that's a very accurate statement. What, what do you think the role of law enforcement uh, is in this country? And have you seen it changed for the better or worse in recent years? You know, I've had the honor and privilege of, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants in the law enforcement industry. Uh, you know, I, I was never a sworn law enforcement officer. And uh, while I had the a great opportunity to work with a number of government agencies, I never worked for a government agency. And working with and standing on the shoulders of, of just giants has been giving me a different, I would say, as a civilian, giving me a different um understanding of the role of law enforcement. And for me, it is making sure that the laws of our countries are followed and being being charged in that capacity to take care of our citizens and to truly help others. What, what greater mission could that be, whether it's you're putting on a uniform to wear uh, for for the military, for, for law enforcement, as a nurse, as any type of first responder, truly that selfless service, Kevin, uh, I believe is the forefront of and what I've heard repeated over and over again by so many of my friends in law enforcement is the forefront of their mission and their ideology. 
with selfless service. Well, uh, touche and bravo. I'm all for reform when reform is needed, including uh, court reform and police reform. And certainly uh, we can both agree that there have been abuses, including police abuses. But there seems to be a highly demoralized state of affairs in law, law enforcement circles across the country. I'm seeing uh, resignations at record paces. I'm seeing uh, law enforcement agencies having tremendous difficulty recruiting young people to become police officers, uh, let's say. Um, spikes, tremendous spikes in suicides of cops in New York City. Last year was just awful with the number of suicides. Do you have any advice uh, to um, people, the American people, about the importance of law enforcement's role and why it's important to respect them and appreciate them? Absolutely. You know, it's um, there's always going to be bad apples in, in every organization. It doesn't matter what it is. But in my viewpoint, the vast, vast majority of law enforcement professionals that I've had the honor and privilege of supporting and working with and learning from, um, you know, such as my the COO of my company, Pat Welsh, you know, a former DA, um, police major, and uh, has been practicing law going on now 42 years. Um, what I have found from these, these professionals is that they require to be covered down by their leadership. And we see that in any organization, whether it's a civilian organization or corporate. And, and Agreed. And I, I guess we're winding down uh, now, Stephen. Thank you very much for being our guest here on Crime and Justice Radio. I learned a lot tonight. I enjoyed speaking with you, and I hope uh, we'll speak again soon. And uh, everyone else, uh, uh, thanks for joining us on Crime and Justice Radio. And we'll see you uh, next week, same time, Monday, 6 p.m. Please join us then as well. Good night, everyone. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.